0: like to direct your attention to are found once again in the book of Numbers. And today we've come to Numbers chapter 25. we'll be reading the whole chapter. Beginning of verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before Yahweh, that the fierce anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. While Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly, thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were twenty four thousand. And you always said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy therefore say behold I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his god and made atonement for the people of Israel the name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the midianite woman was Zimri the son of Salu chief of the father's house belonging to the Simeonites and the name of the Midianite woman was, who was killed was Kosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. This is the word of the Lord. Again, please pray with me. Lord, we're reminded that as we come to your word, we're not reading just another book. We're not just reading a great essay, a great philosophy, a great idea. We're not reading a speech of just some famous leader. We're reading the words that you have penned so that we might know you, that we might know your thoughts and that we might follow after you in your thoughts and that we might conform our lives to your likeness. And so, Father, we come to your word with a, with a, a, a bit of fear and trembling. And we ask that you would use your word to shape us, to mold us, to convict us. Lord, help us to see what we don't see. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Lord, and if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, speak life into their heart. Lord, that they might be freed from the awful consequences of sin. Lord, that they would, they would, they would realize their need for you and trust you. And that they would entrust their souls to you. And find salvation. Lord, we all need your word. And so I pray that you give us clarity and understanding. And direct each one of us how we should apply your word to our own lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. How do you take down an impregnable fortress? This was the question that was facing... The Greeks, after 10 years of ineffective fighting, the city of Troy. Now, the Greek leader Odysseus was convinced, actually, that they could not defeat Troy outright in an open battle. And so they would, instead, they'd need to use intrigue. And he came up with a plan. He suggested that they build a huge, hollow wooden horse. ...as an offering to the goddess of war. And it was constructed by a master carpenter named Epius. And he suggested that they should give this as a gift to the Greeks or to the Trojans. And then the Greeks pretended to desert and they went to a a nearby island called Tenedos. And they left behind a man named Sinon. And Sinon explained to the Trojans that this was a gift to the goddess of Athena. And if, if you possessed this horse... Because Athena was the goddess of, or one of the goddesses of war, then you would be impregnable. You see the irony there. And the Trojans accepted it, despite the warnings of Laocoon and Cassandra. They accepted their destruction in through their gates. And in the middle of the night, the Greek warriors emerged from it. They opened the gates to the rest of the Greek army that had come back from Tinnados, and the city fell in one night. Well, the three preceding chapters of Numbers also demonstrate an impregnable fortress, that is, Israel. The point of Numbers 23 and 24 is, and and 22 actually too, (coughs) sorry, is to demonstrate that Israel could not be taken because God was protecting them. He was keeping them safe. And no amount of intrigue, no amount of uh, military attacks, not even calling upon all the demonic powers of the world could have any effect upon Israel. They were safe as long as God was their protector. And he had vowed to do so. He had made a covenant with them. And even when Balaam was hired by the Midianites and the Moabites to curse Israel every time. God not only protected them from that curse, he turned that curse into a blessing. And and the whole point of the chapters, again, is to show that Israel is impregnable. They're safe. They're secure. But then we come to chapter 25. And the point of chapter 25 is even though they were impregnable from any outside attack, They could bring in destruction through their own gates, so to speak. And that's what happens. They invite their destruction in. Balaam recognized that he could not defeat Israel outright. God made that very clear. Three times he told him so, and then he proved it. So he instead entices them through their lusts. And in doing so, he caused them to crumble like a house of cards. Balaam's involvement in Baal of Peor, in this wickedness, is actually clarified in two other texts. If you keep your hand here, you can turn to Numbers thirty-one sixteen, and It shows that on Balaam's advice, it was, it was on Balaam's advice that the people of Israel acted treacherously. And actually, if you turn to Revelation chapter 2, very end of the Bible, when, Paul, when uh, Jesus speaks to the church of Pergamum, Sorry, He says this, You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So this is even Christ's commentary on what happened. The Midianites came up with this idea on the advice of Balaam. Again, can't attack them from without, but if we can get... if we can entice their lusts we'll take them down and so this chapter really stands as a vehement warning for all for all believers to recognize how vulnerable we are to our own sinful desires really simple outline we see the embrace of sin on behalf of israel in chapter in verses one through three Then briefly noted the consequences of that sin. Then in verses 10-13, we we are given an, an illustration of the right response to sin. And then the consequences upon Moab and Midian for tempting Israel into sin. Let's look first of all at Israel's embrace of sin. And it says that while they lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. So so what's going on here? Well, Canaanite worship. Oh, is that for me? Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Karen. Canaanite worship involved sexual immorality of all sorts. And I will spare you the details. Um. Uh, particularly because of what Paul says in Ephesians 5 when he exhorts the Ephesians, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And it would not be helpful for me to put any filthy images in your mind. But suffice it to say that that through sexual temptation and feasting, these Israelites were drawn into false worship. And they bowed themselves down to these foreign gods, particularly the Baal of Peor. And there are a number of similarities, actually, with Exodus 32. That's uh, the, the incident of the golden calves and this chapter in Numbers 25. And the, and, and the parallels are there to actually show that really nothing's changed. Even though a whole generation has passed away in the, in the wilderness, Israel still struggles with the same issues. They still struggle to maintain self-control and spiritual fidelity. And in their idolatry, they are forsaking every aspect of the covenant that they had made with Yahweh. They're completely breaking their vows to him. Which begs this question, how did Israel ever get mixed up in this sort of sexualized, idolatrous worship? I mean, especially with all of the the laws against such practices and and all the warnings that God gives in his law. Well, we see the answer in actually verse two. They were invited to join in and they accepted the invitation. Just think about that. This is how an impregnable fortress, an impregnable army got taken down in a moment. They were simply invited. Often that's how some of the greatest Christians have fallen away from the Lord as well. Just think of Solomon. Very similar. He just had an invitation to marry a foreign wife who then encouraged him to worship a foreign god. Verse 3, interestingly enough, describes the idolatry as being yoked to Baal. Now, a yoke, as you know, is just a harness that's put upon an animal. And it's used for plowing or if you're going to pull a wagon, often you'll have another animal yoked beside it. And so you have two animals yoked together because they're seeking to accomplish one task. And in being yoked together, the, the two animals are being joined. They're being united to accomplish this and Jesus actually uses this imagery to describe marriage. In fact, right? What therefore God has yoked together—that's actually what the Greek says—let no man separate. What God has yoked together, let no man separate. Matthew nineteen six. And Paul actually picks up on this imagery in Second Corinthians chapter six. In fact, go ahead and flip there. This is this is a very pertinent cross reference. Second Corinthians chapter six verse fourteen. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's definitely what's going on here in Numbers 25. For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And Paul's point is that Christians need to pursue holiness in every aspect of their life. They can't be yoking themselves together with unbelievers and unbelievers' priorities. And so they need to be careful with who they bind themselves together with. And this is actually made really clear if you just look a few verses later in chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And, and notice who Paul's writing to. He's writing to Christians. And I bring that up because you'll have a lot of Christians that say, oh, don't, don't tell us to pursue holiness. That's works based, that's legalism. You know, if we're saved, you know, we're saved. We're already made holy. Well, situationally, that, that is true. Before the Lord, you are declared holy, you're justified. But you're not holy in your life as long as there's any sin that remains. God commands us to pursue it, and not casually. Pursue it vehemently, with aggression, with severity. In fact, that's the point of Numbers 25. It's to warn the people of God, do not take sin and its enticements lightly. It is your greatest threat. It's not some warring nation. It's not some political entity. It's not some bad idea that's immersed in the culture. It is your own sin. The very thing that's so easy to just justify, to ignore, to invite in, because it looks so good and it seems so right. It is our greatest threat. And, and, and recognize, as Paul says this, it's, it's not just sexual lust that Paul's referring to or that we should be on guard against. It's any, any sinful enticement. Lust for power in prestige lust for money lust for food even vengeance on somebody who's wronged you lust for comfort security even even a lust for rest can lead to your destruction Because these Judas desires still remain in our flesh, we need to continually be on guard against the destruction that they would invite into our hearts. We need to recognize they're trying to take us down. So there are many good desires, right? Sexual desires aren't bad. Desires for food are not bad. Desires for security and rest and peace. Those desires aren't bad, but very quickly. They can be enticed to be attracted to the wrong thing. A lust for somebody that's not your spouse is clearly evil. A lust for food beyond just nourishment of the body can be evil. Along with anything, anything can become an idol. And it's by accepting just an invitation from the Moabites that the Israelites were accepting a dagger into their hearts. And as you would expect verse 4 says that this angered the Lord. Just just imagine how you would feel if you caught your spouse in bed with another person. That's essentially what's going on here. You wouldn't just go, "Oh, that's a bad choice." You'd be furious. And that gives you some clarity on why God responds the way he responds. And it's completely just Israel is committing flagrant spiritual adultery. And so God brings his judgment upon his people in verses four through nine. Yahweh said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Note verse five. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill of those Of his men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. So it's two judgments that's going on here. First of all, note that Israel, God tells Moses to have all of the leaders of Israel executed on account of the people's apostasy. It's the leaders who are being executed, not the people. And the reason for this is because the leaders are the ones who are responsible to make sure that people don't get involved. They should have interceded. They should have stepped in. They should have stopped it. But they didn't watch. They didn't guard them. The leaders had clearly failed in their duty, but even some probably participated in the idolatry. <clears throat> and I bring this up because once again... It just shows us how God views leadership, the the scriptural view of leadership. Leadership in the Bible is not a position of prestige or of privilege. It's a position of responsibility. Whatever happens beneath your realm of leadership, you are responsible for. And Moses is told that the means of appeasing God's wrath is First, the public execution of the leaders. Execution. And then the execution of any participants among the people, known participants. So Moses instructs the judges, who apparently served as magistrates of justice, to carry out the order. And we're actually not told that this order was fulfilled. Apparently, it, it wasn't completely fulfilled because the plague is not stopped, which represents the wrath of God. The plague is not stopped until Phineas carries out his act of judgment. And it appears that while some of these judgments are being carried out, an act of massive influence is recorded. One of the Israelite leaders takes for himself a Midianite princess and brings her to his family. And the implication here is, is that he's saying, this is the woman I want to marry And he does this in the face of Moses and the whole congregation while they're weeping over this immorality. At the tent of meeting, as as probably some of these executions have already taken place, people have already died by the plague in his insolence. This man does the very thing that Israel is being punished for. And in this bold defiance of Moses and God. Notice that nobody does a thing. except Phineas. He's the only one that we're told raises any sort of objection. He follows them into the tent and he pierces them through with a spear while they're consummating their union. And the imagery is intentionally graphic. In fact, some of the words that are used here uh, in the Hebrew are the same ones that we saw in number six, which um, explained how what should happen to a wife who was found guilty of adultery. The point of the graphic description really is to demonstrate that this was an act of judgment. And God's wrath upon Israel is stopped because, first of all, Phineas was willing to confront the sin. And second of all, Phineas was willing to do something about the sin. He not only confronted it, but he took action to stop it. And this leads to the central point of the passage, God's covenant with Phineas. Now, Phineas, you'll see, is particularly blessed because he was jealous with God's jealousy. The word translated jealousy means a passionate intensity to protect or preserve divine or social institutions. It could be translated as zeal. In fact, some translations translated as zeal, and that's a good translation. And and you'll note that the word is ultra emphatic in this passage because it's mentioned three times in one verse. And then once again in verse 13. And notice the language is quite remarkable. He was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Notice that that Phineas shared God's jealousy for his people. He shared God's jealousy. And that jealousy was expressed by a violent execution of the perpetrators, which is what appeased God's jealousy. So that God's jealousy wouldn't continue to be... Couldn't couldn't continue to be... um, meted out on the rest of the people. What appeased God's jealousy was Phineas' act of jealousy. God praises Phineas because he did something to quench the jealousy, which was putting an end to the sin. On account of Phineas' zeal, God makes him a perpetual covenant of peace. This is remarkable because this is one of the few times in Scripture God actually makes a covenant with people. Now, there's a a lot of theologians that will read covenants into the white spaces of Scripture, but there's really only six covenants that Scripture says God made with people. So the first was Noah, then Abraham, then he made the, the covenant with Israel, sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant. This covenant with Phineas, then the Davidic covenant, and then finally the new covenant, which is made for all believers. So there's only six divine covenants, and this is one of them, and probably the the least well-known. And it's important because it's often overlooked, and it's very similar to God's covenant with David. In fact, in Scripture, it's often placed alongside it. God promises Phineas that his descendants will always serve as priests, just as David's, one of David's descendants, would always be a king in Israel. In fact, Scripture goes out of its way to show the genealogical line of Phineas will continue into the millennial kingdom through the priest of Zadok. See this in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 50. The prophet Ezekiel indicates that the that only the only priest that will be permitted to minister in the millennial temple will be those who are descended from Zadok. Again, keeping this, Phineas, this covenant with Phineas in, in perpetuation. God also indicates in Jeremiah 13 that his covenants with David and Phineas are as certain as the rising and setting of the sun. So God will maintain the priesthood through Phineas. Into the millennial kingdom, that's still future. God has promised to always have one of Phineas' descendants as a priest in Israel, so the priesthood continues. So God honors Phineas immensely for his zealous love, and and this really this shows us the kind of action that God loves to honor and bless. I mean, is this, what, is this the kind of response you desire from God, that He would want to honor you, that He would be eager to bless you and, and give you a particular honor because of your faithfulness? Well, how do you do that? Zealously love Him. Love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Not with a lukewarm affection, but with zeal. Make it your passionate ambition to be consumed with a love for God. And not just in your affections, not just in your mind, that you would be able to answer all these doctrinal questions. But in all of your life, all of your being, it would be clear He is the one guiding passion of your life. It, and everything you do, you do it all for the glory of God. See, note that Phineas didn't just feel a zeal for God. He wasn't just worked up because he heard a really good worship chorus. He showed his love for God in taking action. Right? There's lots of people who have strong feelings, even strong feelings over sin, even strong feelings of their own sin. I mean, there's lots of Christians Who weep over their sin, who are angry even at themselves for their sin. But often those same Christians will do nothing to stop it. And they keep committing the same sin again and again and again and again. And then they wonder after years am I even a believer? They have no true zeal for holiness. Just like those who are the Israelites who are weeping at the tent. They realize their consequences for sin. They weep, but no action. The point is here, God wants us to take action. To do something about it. Don't just show him your emotions. You should feel grief. You should be broken. But are you going to do something about it? Or are you just going to talk? How would Christ evaluate your zeal for him? Would he say that you're clearly living with a zeal for him? With a a passion to live for his glory, to see his name exalted? Or would he say, frankly, your affection for me seems lukewarm? Would you identify with the Christians in the church of Laodicea? In fact, if you turn to Revelation 3, notice this. Revelation chapter 3. These Christians to whom Jesus says in verse 15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And, and notice how Jesus tells such lukewarm people to respond. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. His point here is if you will, if you sense that you're lukewarm in your worship. First of all, that's a major problem. Second of all, repent. Do something about it. Be zealous and repent. Make like Phineas. Kill the sin that is in your life. Throw away the cell phone. Stop buying the junk food. Cut off those relationships that continue to lead you into foolishness. Cut up the credit cards. We have to quote John Owen here. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. If you feel lukewarm in your heart, it's not a personality problem. It's a will problem. As C.S. Lewis suggests, this problem, it's not that our our lusts are too strong. The problem with us being enticed into sinful actions is that our desires are too weak. He famously wrote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Similarly, John Owen suggests that when we wholly devote ourselves to our relationship with God, that is what guards us from our Judas desires, the desires that would betray us. It's what Owen writes. When the soul is exercised in communion with Christ and to walking with him, he drinks new wine and cannot desire the old things of the world, for he says the new is better. He tastes every day how gracious the Lord is, and therefore longs not after the sweetness of the forbidden things, which indeed have none. He that makes it his business to eat daily of the tree of life, Will have no appetite unto other fruit, though the tree that bare them seem to stand in the midst of paradise. the, The reason we allow our desires to be led astray unto evil things is because we don't fix our desires upon the fount of all satisfaction. We don't guard our heart. We, we think of spiritual disciplines as merely duties. Things that we're just supposed to do to check off the box, not realizing, no, we need the word as much as we can. And we need to be on guard against worldliness, worldly entertainment, worldly music, worldly friendships. We need to pray way more than we do. We need fellowship. I get it. Sometimes you go to church and you don't feel like you get anything out of it. Sometimes you go to a community group or a discipleship group and you you don't get a buzz. Well, the point isn't to have an emotional buzz or to learn something new. The point is these are the things that God has brought into our lives so that we wouldn't be drawn away and ruin ourselves. We need these things because we're not strong. Remember what the greatest commandment is. The commandment that sums up all the other commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, with all of your being. Don't rest until you do. Make that your endeavor. Not a raise, not a bigger house, not a bigger family. Those things aren't bad. But make the purpose of your life to love him with all you are. Anything that holds you back from loving him, put it to death. See, note too that it's not the violence that God commends in Phineas; It's his zeal. Right? The violence was warranted because God had ordered violent action to be taken. I mean, for those sins, God had already given laws. If they sin in this way, put them to death. But more than that, he had just ordered the perpetrators to be executed. And as a priest, Phineas was a divinely appointed magistrate. So don't misunderstand the text. God isn't saying that if you're really angry about somebody else's sin, you can take it into your own hands to enact vigilante justice. That's not the point. Because in Romans 13 and at the end of Romans 12, God makes it very clear. Only those who are duly appointed magistrates can enact civil justice. If you're not one of those, you need to pray, and and look to the Lord to take vengeance upon your sin, or upon someone else's sin against you. See, noting that the zeal of Phinehas is commended is important because it clarifies to us the biblical principle that's being that's being manifest in this passage, so that we can correctly draw out its implications. This is the principle. God desires all of his people to have a zeal for covenant faithfulness. He wants all of us not to be lukewarm, but to be zealous with, with the covenant that God has made with us, namely the new covenant for believers. And that, that word for covenant faithfulness in the Hebrew, remember what it is? Hasid, normally translated, Love. He wants us to love Him. And such love will be expressed with a zeal to cut off off any threat that would hinder our covenant faithfulness. So, what are the threats to your faithfulness to God? What is hindering you right now from loving Him with all that you are, with all your being? What commitments? What relationships, what entanglements continue to invite you into sin or hinder your pursuit of godliness? This is the question Are you willing to take zealous action to cut off those stumbling blocks? Or are you just con- content to sit here and listen to a sermon? And nod your head in agreement. God doesn't want head nods. He wants zealous action to be taken. Put it to death. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet To be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So godly zeal in Christians is primarily going to be seen in how they respond to their own sin. It's not in the raising of hands during a song. It's not in how many badges they get in Awana. It's not their position in a church. It's how do you respond to your sin? Do you justify it? Do you defend it? Do you protect it? Do you hide it? Do you hide it from your spouse, from your kids, from your boss? Or do you kill it? And there are, there are a lot of so-called Christians out there that fancy themselves as having a zeal for the Lord because they have no problem going and pointing out all the, the sin they see in other people's lives. But true godly zeal will be first seen in, a, in personal humility and in repentance. In fact, notice how Paul uses this word zeal in 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, or chapter 7, sorry. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. His point is, Corinthians, you have demonstrated through your actions, through your weeping, doing whatever you could to show that you hated what you did in in accepting sin in your midst. And you are now ready to be done with it. Phineas' zealous action, therefore, shows us what God wants us to do with the enticements to sin in our lives. He wants us to put sin to death. As Paul writes the Colossians. Colossians 3 verse 5. Put to death. Therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Passion. Evil desire. And covetousness. Which is idolatry. On account of these things. The wrath of God is coming. His point is take action. Put it to death. Do whatever you can to kill it. This leads us to the consequences for tempting into sin. Verses 14 and 15 clarify that the culprits were the leading figures of both nations. These culprits that were executed by Phinehas. The man Zimri was a chief Israelite. He was a leader. He was well known within the community. And the woman, Cosby, daughter of Zor, was a princess of Midian. And verses 16 through 18 clarified that what happened to Peor was really all a part of conspiracy on behalf of the Midianites. Israel was fooled. They were beguiled. They were tricked into committing spiritual adultery. And they were done. That happened to them because they knew God was protecting them. They had to trick them in order for God to turn against them. So the same God who used who used to protect them from Balaam's curses, because they invited sin in, now had to enact judgment, and He became their greatest threat. And Balaam and the Midianites' plan worked. But God disciplines them for their part in tempting into sin. This this last section is about God's discipline on the tempters, not just the tempted. And therefore, he calls Israel to harass Midian. And he's also going to deal with Balaam for his part in the conspiracy. Numbers 31, eight says <clears throat> they killed the kings of Midian and the rest of their slain. Evi, Rechim, Zur, that's Cosby's father, Hur and Reba, and the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. So the point is that God has taken vengeance upon all of these tempters. You've heard of the phrase, your sin will find you out. That's actually a quote from the book of Numbers. In Numbers 32, 32, 23. The point is God is not fooled. You can't just sweep sin under the rug. Just because you forget about it or somebody else forgets about it means it never happened. That's not true. God sees all of our sin and he will hold all of it accountable. This is why Jesus warned his disciples, Luke 17, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. That's even more severe than cut off your hand, gouge out your eye. God wants us to take our sin really seriously. But he really wants us to be careful and not leading another person into sin. Because there will be a severe judgment. God sees everything that a person does, that a person thinks. That a person says. And he will bring every act into judgment. And re- recognize that all the sin that's seen in this passage, therefore, is seen by God. And the point is, as he sees it, he judges it. The plague, the execution of the leaders. Phineas's act of judgment, and then later on, the destruction of Moab and Midian and Balaam. The point is, nothing we do is hidden from the sight of God. This is why Paul says in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Hebrews 10.30 For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You might recall Jesus' words to his disciples in John chapter 2 after cleansing the temple he said a zeal for your house will consume me the disciples later understood that as a foreshadowing of his death Jesus' zeal for God and covenant faithfulness is what leads Jesus to the cross that's what he was speaking to And instead of executing the perpetrators with a spear, Jesus allowed himself to be speared. And Jesus allowed himself to be pierced for their sin. As the Christmas hymn states, nails, spears, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. He was pierced. Jesus also is the leader of all Israel. Allowed himself to be hung in public execution, just like the leaders in verse 4. He had his body hung in the sun because he was taking the punishment that all of his people deserved. And like Phineas, Jesus atoned for man's sin. But unlike Phineas, he didn't kill. But he allowed himself to be killed in their place. I close with 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Heavenly Father, we know what You know. And we know what we deserve. And that's why we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, in light of the removal of the full penalty we deserve, in light of the unity that we now have with the Son, With the Father and the Spirit. Lord, we want to live for you and for your glory. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. Lord, help us to see what we need to do. Show us our sin. Help us to see what actions we need to take what changes we need to make in our life, Lord, that we would be zealous for you. We don't want to be a church of lukewarm worshipers. Help us to be zealous and repent. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.